Open them to 1 Samuel chapter 12. I'm a little, I don't know if you've noticed this from the times I've been up here, but I'm a little obsessed with quotes. I put a lot of quotes up when I preach, like statements that just make you sit and ponder. And I have this card that sits on my desk at work, and it's, I think I got it at the Oxford Exchange. They put these little notes with you when you check out, you sign your bill, and I saw one and kept it, and I put it under my desk at work. I don't think it's a Christian quote, but it's just, it's, it's something I really like to remember, and it says this. It says, courage, you can't read it, that's why I'm reading it to you. It's small. <laughs> it's more the visual of the picture. Um, courage is not the absence of fear, but rather the judgment that something else is more important. Courage is not the absence of fear, but rather the judgment that something else is more important. And I think a lot of, in a lot of cases, these quotes that I come across that I, that I just really like to sit and think about, I think it's the fact that they belong to something bigger. You know, rarely does someone, I don't, maybe there are people out there who just try to sit around and think of quotes. They're probably trying to get Twitter followers or Instagram followers or something. But, you know, usually a quote is not in and of itself. It's usually part of something bigger, like a speech, or it's a, a snippet of a, you know, something bigger, or someone's passion. It's a piece of someone's passion or a a brief glimpse into a powerful movement. Um, you know, I think of Martin Luther King Jr. when he gave his powerful speech on the steps of the Lincoln Memorial, and there was tens of thousands of people on both sides of the reflecting pool. And if you go to D.C. today, there's actually a, a little plaque in the ground that marks the spot where he stood. But as he s- stood there, you know, he's a 34-year-old preacher at the time. And he steps to the microphone and he says, I have a dream. And then he, you know, kind of just repeats it in different ways and different things. But that phrase, if I said to you, I have a dream, most of you would know exactly who said it, exactly where it came from. Um, You think back to, actually, um, most of you weren't there, but some of you maybe read about it, saw it on TV. But 1961, when JFK was um, at the presidential inauguration, this long speech, but he said, At the very end of the speech, he said, Ask not what your country can do for you. Ask what you can do for your country. And those those phrases, those quotes, they they stick with us. They're powerful. Um, I think one of my favorite speeches took place in 1993 at the very first ESPY Awards. Okay, and for you non-sports people, the ESPYs were created kind of like an Oscars of sports. I mean, they had the best plays of the year, the best athletes of that year, the best teams of that year, and the fans would vote, and the sports writers would vote. Well, that was the very first one. The very first ESPYs was 1993. In 1993, they had this award at the very end. So I'm watching this. As a kid, I'm watching this go down, and they had this thing called the Arthur Ashe Courage Award. And I remember Dick Vitale was up on stage, and he was the one that was handing out the award. And he calls out the name for the winner, which was Jim Valvano. Anybody know the name Jim Valvano? Anybody? All right. Jim was a longtime basketball coach at North Carolina State University, but unfortunately in 1993 he was dying of cancer. And so when Dick Vitale won or announced that he had won the Courage Award, you see him get out of his seat and he kind of makes his way to the stairs and then people get up and help him walk up to the stage. He gets behind the podium. And he begins to speak, and you really have no idea what he's going to say. I mean, I was mesmerized. I'm just like, you know, what is he going to say? I kind of knew the, the backstory, what was happening. 
but he, he gave a 12-minute speech. You can watch it on YouTube. He gave a 12-minute heartfelt speech. And most of it is just like there's these quotes inside the speech that are just etched in my mind, like these things that he said. I'm going to read a few of them to you. He said, time is precious to me. I don't know how much I have left. And I have some things that I would like to say. To me, there are three things that you should do every day. Number one is laugh. You should laugh every day. Number two is think. You should spend some time in thought. Number three is you should have your emotions moved to tears. Could be happiness, could be joy, but you should have your emotions moved to tears. And he said, think about it. If you laugh, if you think, and you cry, that's a full day. And he said it way better than I can say it. He said, you know, he's got that Italian bag. He's like, that's a full day. All right, you do that seven days a week, you're going to have something special. And he said, I urge all of you to enjoy your life, the precious moments that you have. To spend each day with some laughter, with some thought, to get your emotions going, to be enthusiastic every day. He said, I look at where I am now, and I know what I want to do. I'd like to spend whatever time I have left giving some hope to others. Cancer can take away all my physical abilities, but it cannot touch my mind, it cannot touch my heart, and it cannot touch my soul. And those three things are going to carry on forever. I thank you, and God bless you all. I remember I'm a kid, I'm sitting there in front of the television, I'm watching this, I'm just like dumbfounded. I'm just, I'm listening to this because he, he spoke with such passion and such emotion. And I, I knew, I hadn't been really acquainted with anybody who was dying. I hadn't been acquainted with death. You know, in America, it's, it's not every day that you're acquainted with death. And so it was just, I, I'm watching this guy. He's giving this speech. I knew, he knew he was dying. This was his farewell speech, his last chance to speak to his fellow athletes, coaches, the people who were there in attendance and speak from his heart. And he did just that. And they called him, his name kind of, they called him Jimmy V. That's what he was in that, Jim Valvano. He went, went by Jimmy V. And he would lose his battle with cancer two months later. And that was 25 years ago. And his words are still, I still hear his words. I hear these quotes, you know, at different sporting events and different things. I read them in books. You know, he has one phrase where he says, don't give up. Don't ever, ever give up. And every, every time I hear that, I just know that came from Jimmy V in his speech, 1993 at the ESPYs. And there's just all these different things that happen. And as you read through Scripture, you see a lot of similar times where people in Scripture are giving farewell speeches, where they're giving, they're challenging a group of people. They're talking to a group of people. They're trying to push a group of people to follow Christ, to follow the Lord, to give their lives to Him. And, you know, some of these farewell speeches are given on deathbeds. Some are just given as people are kind of stepping down from their positions. Um, I spent some time this week reading through Scripture and trying to find some of these farewell speeches. And there's, there's quite a few, a couple that I saw. One was Genesis 49. So you had Abraham, you had Isaac, you had Jacob. God changed Jacob's name to Israel, and Israel's like, you know, Jacob is like the patriarch of Israel. His 12 sons would become the 12 tribes of Israel. So when you hear Israel, it's really just Jacob and his family and all their future generations. So as Jacob's about ready to die, he calls his 12 sons in front of them, in front of him, and he just goes down the line. Reuben, Naphtali, I mean, he just keeps going down the line. He gets to Judah, who eventually who the line of Christ would be through is Judah. And he just, he just, you're just listening to him speak. And you, you know, I always try to put myself in the room. You know, picture the emotion of the moment. We just read it and you're like, Oh, he's giving a farewell speeches. 
I mean, he's on his deathbed. He's passionately telling these guys, here's what your lives are going to be like. Here's what's happening. Here's why I want you to follow Christ. I mean, these are the things that are happening to Moses. In the end of Deuteronomy, Moses gets up a couple hundred years later. He does the same thing. He's got this farewell speech for the people of Israel. And you think of Moses and you think of his life and you know, he's out in the desert and there's a burning bush and God says, go get my people. So he goes and there's 10 plagues and he's witnessed all these plagues. He's witnessed the Red Sea part. I mean, can you fathom what it must have been like to see the Red Sea part and you walk across on dry ground? I mean, Moses had been through all this. He hit rocks and waters come out. There's been bread falling from heaven. I mean, come on. The things that Moses has seen, and it was all leading up to the promised land. The land promised to Abraham, then promised to Isaac, then promised to Jacob, then they go into slavery. I mean, this is the promise that has been happening for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And Moses is standing. He couldn't go in because of disobedience. Joshua's going to be the one that takes him in. He's standing on the edge of the promised land. You can see it. You can just imagine the range of emotions that are going through Moses' mind. And in Deuteronomy 31, he says, I am now 120 years old, and I'm no longer able to lead you. The Lord God, the Lord your God himself, will cross over ahead of you. And that language is insanely important for 1 Samuel chapter 12, where we're going to be today. The Lord is the one that's going to lead you. The Lord your God will lead you. He will cross over ahead of you. He will destroy these nations before you, and you will take possession of their land. Joshua also will cross over ahead of you. As the Lord said, verse 6, be strong, here's your quote, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them, for the Lord your God goes with you. He will never leave you, never forsake you. Words that we should remind ourselves of daily, even today. And then not long after Moses, Joshua, his replacement, comes on the scene. And Joshua gives a similar challenge in Joshua 24. He says to the people of Israel, now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods of your ancestors. Your ancestors worshipped beyond the Euphrates River in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if you're serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Whether the gods of your ancestors serve beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in the land you are living, but for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So you keep, I'm, I'm looking for these speeches this week and I'm going through it and they're giving me goosebumps as I'm trying to picture the situations they're in, the emotions that they're in, you know, what's been happening in the setting. And then you kind of get to 1 Samuel 12 and you're going to hear another farewell address. And this time it's from the prophet Samuel. He's passing the torch on to Saul. And I realize this torch seems to have been passing for like five chapters now. We've been doing this, you know, every week you feel like, okay, he's, it's passed, it's passed, it's passed. But here's, here's what I want you to think about. It's kind of like a presidential election, that this whole process that's going down. So Samuel was in office. He was the judge. This is the end of the judges. They're ushering in a new era. We're leaving a theocracy where the people are being judged through Samuel. God is judging through Samuel. We're moving over to a monarchy where you're being judged or being ruled by kings. So that's what's happening. So Saul was like this presidential candidate. He was brought before the people. He won the election, even though it was rigged, and God's the one that you know, put him in there, all right? He actually takes them into battle after he's kind of assigned as king or anointed as king. He takes him into battle. And then last week, they go down to Gilgal. Remember that? They went down to Gilgal. And it's, we'll call that Inauguration Day. And so everything became official. All, every, all the dust has settled. Saul is now king. And picture what's about to happen in 1 Samuel 12 
Like, Samuel is still on the podium. He's been sworn in, even though there probably wasn't a swearing in, but he's been sworn in, and Samuel's going to reach over. He's going to grab the microphone from Saul. And in 1 Samuel 12, Samuel's going to speak to the people one more time. This is his farewell address to the people of Israel. Okay, we're going to run through it pretty quick because a lot of it's stuff we've already covered in the previous weeks. But here's what he says, verse 1. And Samuel said to all Israel, Behold, I have obeyed your voice in all that you have said to me and have made a king over you. And now behold, the king walks before you, and I am old and gray, and behold, my sons are with you. I have walked before you from my youth until this day. Now don't forget in 1 Samuel, very beginning, we had um, Hannah, Samuel's mom, had been praying and praying and praying for a child. Remember that? Praying, 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 and God gives her Samuel. And she takes Samuel to Eli, the high priest, and this is kind of the first six or seven chapters of 1 Samuel. She takes Samuel to the high priest, Eli, and gives him. So when he says, I have been with you from my youth until this day, he means that. He literally has been with them his entire life. Verse 3, here I am, testify against me before the Lord and before his anointed. Whose ox have I taken? Whose donkey have I taken? And when you, when you read that, at least when I was reading it the first time, whenever I'm going to preach, I'm reading through this over and over and over and over and praying about it and studying it. And when I first read that, I was like, what a random thing to say. It's the end of your life. You're talking to the people and you say, whose ox have I taken? Whose donkey have I taken? But if you remember from 1 Samuel chapter 8, when the people demand a king, Samuel looks at them and says, you know what a king's going to do? He's going to take... He's going to take, he's going to take. He's going to constantly take from you. 1 Samuel chapter 8, verse 13, and I have it up on the screen so you don't have to turn. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive orchards and give them to his servants. He will take the tenth of your grain and of your vineyards and give it to his officers and to his servants. He will take your male servants and female servants and the best of your young men and your donkeys and put them to work. And he goes on and on and on in 1 Samuel chapter 8. But here's the deal. He looks at them and says, I know what's about to happen. I know what a king is going to do. And I just want to remind you before I leave, whose ox have I taken? Whose donkeys have I taken? God doesn't take. He gives. The judges, they didn't take from you. They gave. That's the heart of God, giving gave his son to die on the cross for our sins. That is the heart of God. But the kings come in, and the kings are going to take. Whom have I defrauded? Whom have I oppressed? Or from whose hand have I taken a bribe to blind my eyes with it? Again, he's kind of hinting at what a king will probably do. Testify against me, and I will restore it to you. They said, you have not defrauded us, or oppressed us, or taken anything from any man's hands. And he said to them, the Lord has witnessed against you, and his anointed is witness this day that you have not found anything in my hand. And they said, he is witness. So, uh, you know, essentially what he's doing, he's washing his hands of what's about to go down. Reminding them that everything the Lord has done for them over the years. And he's about to go into a dialogue where he does just that. He reminds them over and over and over of what the Lord has done and how he has delivered them. And this is the key, without a king. He delivered them with his own power. No figurehead, no no kingly figurehead. Verse 6, And Samuel said to the people, The Lord is witness, who appointed Moses and Aaron, and brought your fathers up out of Egypt. Now therefore stand still, 
that I may plead with you before the Lord concerning all the righteous deeds of the Lord that he performed for you and your fathers. When Jacob went into Egypt and the Egyptians oppressed them, then your fathers cried out to the Lord and did he raise up a king? No. The Lord sent Moses and Aaron who brought your fathers out of Egypt and made them dwell in this place. But they forgot the Lord their God, and he sold them into the hand of Sisera, commander of the army of Hazor, and into the hand of the Philistines, and into the hand of the king of Moab. And they fought against them, and they cried out to the Lord and said, We have sinned, because we have forsaken the Lord and have served the Baals and the Ashtaroth. But now deliver us out of the hand of our enemies, that we may serve you. Verse 11, And did he he send them a king to deliver them? No. The Lord sent judges. Jeroboam and Barak and Jephthah and Samuel. Samuel's like, don't forget, he sent me too. Right? He's talking to him. And Samuel, he sent me too. And he delivered you out of the hand of your enemies on every side. And you lived in safety. Now, verse 12, he's kind of, Samuel's skipping ahead. And now you saw that Nahash, king of the Ammonites, right? Remember Nahash last week? Remember him? He's the one that wanted to gouge everybody's eyes out. Name it snake, Nahash. If you look up his name, it means snake. So Samuel says, And when you saw that Nahash, king of the Ammonites, came against you, you said to me, No, but a king shall reign over us, when the Lord your God was your king. So he's just kind of recapped all this stuff that's happened, how the Lord has constantly delivered them. And he says, But then Nahash comes along, and you, you want a king. And God was your king. And throughout history, I mean, it's a thousand years. If you look at the timelines, if you study this, it's a thousand years from Abraham to King Saul. A thousand years. And for a thousand years, Israel went without a king. God was their king. He was their deliverer. And all of a sudden, something happens. Nahash, the snake comes in. The snake whispers lies. And they get scared. Do you see the imagery? Do you think it's a coincidence that Nahash's name means snake? I don't. Because Satan is the father of lies. And no matter how many times God delivers us, and no matter how many times he has worked in your life, no matter how many times he has drawn you to himself, Satan's going to whisper lies in your ear. He's not who he says he is. I know, I know he's had your back in the past, but this is right now. And he can't do this. He can't overcome Nahash. He can't overcome the snake, right? He can't, you know, he can't overcome. And it's, it's crazy if you wrap your mind around it, but far too often we're so concerned with what the snake is saying that we miss everything the Lord's promised. We're just so focused on those lies. And sometimes the lies are, sometimes we believe the lies. Sometimes we get to the point where we think they're truth. You're right, I can't do that. You're right, God can't use me to do that. Yeah, that person's never going to come to faith in Christ. Yeah, I'm, I'm never going to go there. There's no way Iran is ever going to have that many Christians. You know how many people probably doubted that years ago? There's no way. There's no way that. There's no way Korea is going to have a ton of Christians. I mean, the Lord is always going. His church is going to be built. And Satan's like, no, it's not. No, it's not. No, it's not. And the Israelites, they believed him. They got scared. They believed and they felt Nahash was going to really gouge their eyes out. They demanded a king. Verse 13, And now behold the king whom you have chosen, for whom you have asked, behold, the Lord has set a king over you. And if you will fear the Lord 
and serve him and obey his voice and not rebel against the commandment of the Lord. And if both you and the king who reigns over you will follow the Lord your God, it will be well. But if you will not obey the voice of the Lord, but rebel against the commandment of the Lord, then the hand of the Lord will be against you and your king. Okay? And just in case you forgot how powerful the Lord is, just in case you're wondering if he's able to deliver you, just open your eyes, stand still, and I'm about to show you something. I'm about to show you how, what God's power looks like. Verse 16. Now therefore stand still and see this great thing that the Lord will do before your eyes. Is it not the wheat harvest today? I will call upon the Lord that he may send thunder and rain, and you shall know and see that your wickedness is great, which you have done in the sight of the Lord, and in asking for yourselves a king. So Samuel called upon the Lord, and the Lord sent thunder and rain that day, and the people greatly feared the Lord and Samuel. So they're all standing around there at Gilgal. Samuel's giving this address. He's just told them why you didn't trust, you didn't trust, you didn't trust. Asking for a king, it's lack of faith. You're scared. You don't trust that God can deliver you. I'm going to show you how big God is. Thunder and rain come down from heaven. Now, when we look outside, you know, we see rain. It doesn't really seem like a big deal. That just means it's the summer. That means it's 4.30 and it's going to rain every single day. And, you know, we see rain all the time. We don't really freak out over it. But there's a couple things at play specifically in this situation. One is these people lived in a different time. The ancient world was very unnerved when it came to the elements. They were very scared when it came to the rain, the thunder. They weren't really, they didn't really know what was going on. Remember Jonah in the, in the ship? And, it, you know, they're all scared. They're casting lots. What's going to happen here? Remember Jesus and his disciples when he's sleeping below deck and there's this big storm and they're all scared. And they don't know what's, I mean, it was very, now I wouldn't want to be on the boat either, but it was very terrifying to see the elements happen. So when a prophet stands there and calls down thunder and lightning and rain on demand, that was a scary thing. It'd be probably be a little scary for us today, no matter how used to rain we are. But not only do they live in a different time, they live in a different climate. This is the wheat harvest, right? The wheat harvest takes place between May and July. Israel gets zero rain between May and July. I actually looked it up online even today, right? I like numbers. I put a little graph up there. I didn't make the graph. Not that weird, right? I found the graph. I found the graph online. But if you see the little middle there, May, June, July, you see that you can basically not see the numbers. That's because it does not rain in the summer months. I was on tourist travel sites looking at Israel, and it said if you want to go and avoid the rain, go in the summer, because in the, the quote said, it will never, ever rain in the summer in Israel. These are what the, the, literally the travel sites are telling me. So this is, I mean, okay, they lived in a different time. And it was the middle of the summer. That's why he starts it by saying, is it not wheat harvest today? It doesn't, that's AKA, it doesn't rain. And I'm going to make rain and thunder and lightning come down from heaven. Josephus, who's an ancient historian, he said, this was a winter storm in the middle of the summer harvest. That's what this was, a winter storm. And the people would have been terrified. All right, verse 19, you can see some of that. And all the people said to Samuel, Pray for your servants to the Lord your God that we may not die. For we have added to all our sins this evil to ask for ourselves a king. Finally, about four or five chapters later, a little recognition of what they've done. Ask for a king. Verse 20, And Samuel said to the people, Do not be afraid. Why shouldn't you be afraid? You have done all this evil. You know, I kind of expected him to say something different. Like, 
Don't be afraid because this happened. Don't be afraid. You have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. It's a great reminder, and here's why I think it's a great reminder. I don't know what your life before Christ was like, but that would be a, a good definition of my life before Christ. Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil. Yet do not turn aside from following the Lord, but serve the Lord with all your heart. My life before Christ, like if, if I listen to the lies of the snake, if I listen to the lies of Satan, there's no way that I ever in a million years would have thought that the Lord would accept me into his family. Because I'm just, there's no way. If I had a list of all the things that my prior life looked like, I probably wouldn't be your pastor. Because there's just, and I, I look at that verse, and he's like, do not be afraid. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord. But serve him with all your heart. I think it's a, a phenomenal reminder for everybody here today no matter where you are, what you're doing, what your life looks like, no matter what you're involved in, that the Lord is a God of forgiveness. Just like he's showing right here. You asked for a king, I gave you a king. Is it the right thing to do? No. But I love you, and I care about you, and I'm still going to work in your life. That's a phenomenal reminder. 21, and do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake because it has pleased the Lord to make a people for himself. Why is the Lord continuing to show love towards his people? For his name's sake. So his name is magnified. His name is glorified. Verse 23, Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. And I will instruct you in the good in the right way. So Samuel's role as as judge is over. This is kind of the ending of his role as judge, but he's still a prophet. And we'll see him surface a few more times when they go to get a new king after Saul. They'll name King David. Samuel will be there. And Samuel says, far be it for me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. And it's a challenging statement because if you put yourself in Samuel's shoes, he led these people since he was his whole life. We see pictures of him in the temple when he was a kid. He's been around these people his whole life. He's been guiding them, he's been teaching them, and he's been kind of pushing them towards the Lord and say, this is the way you should go. And finally, think about it, a thousand years of no king, and under his reign, under his judgeship, it comes to an end. They demand a king. And if I'm in Samuel's shoes, I'm pretty offended. I'm, I'm like, why, why, why? So put yourself in his shoes. Some of you have been caring for, some of you have been loving, some of you have been discipling, some of you have been pouring into, just keep going on, all the synonyms you can. They decide to walk away. I'm out of here. It's ridiculous. I don't believe in this no more. I'm gone. Totally against your guidance. They start walking down a path that you don't want them to walk down. You still pray for them. Far be it for me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. You pray for people who frustrate you. Pray for people who get on your nerves. You pray for people who have wronged you, sinned against you. It's, that's that's a tough thing, right? That's the the forgive. That's a picture of the forgiveness of God. When we're willing to forgive people, overlook the trespasses, 
and pray for them. Verse 24, only the fear of the Lord, only fear the Lord and serve him faithfully with all your heart. For consider what great things he has done for you. Fear the Lord, serve him faithfully, and consider what great things he has done for you. There's your quote for the passage, right? Fear the Lord. And this is not in a scared sense, right? We could do 10 sermons on the fear of the Lord. This is not in a scared sense. This is in a positional sense. You're fearing the Lord. He's the almighty creator of the universe. He loves you. He created you. He formed you in your mother's womb. He gave you life. He gave you breath. Fear him. Come positionally under him and realize that he is sovereign. He is God. He is in control. He can deliver you even though you think you need a king. And because of that, serve him faithfully. The next sentence, serve him faithfully. Take your giftings, your ministries, serve the Lord. And then finally, I love this one, consider what great things he has done for you. Samuel's in a pretty odd situation right now. I'm sure he's like, what's going on? End of the judges. I'm still a prophet, but I mean, what does my relationship to these people even look like? So he's in, he's in a tough spot. And he tells the people, consider what great things he has done for you. Do you ever consider the great things the Lord has done for you? I could erase that list from earlier and put a new list up here. All the great things the Lord has done for me. And I'm not deserving of any of them. But he pursues me constantly. He shows me he loves me. And he pursues you and he loves you. Celebrate the gospel. Consider the magnitude of the creator of the universe, John John 1, becoming flesh and coming down among us, walking among us, healing people, looking around at humanity, having compassion on humanity, and walking and just, I mean, the last verse in John says, if all the things that Jesus did were written down, I suppose that the whole world couldn't contain the books that would be written. When Jesus was here, he was healing, 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 loving, 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 miracle after miracle after miracle after miracle right? That's what he did. He was in amongst his people. Then he died on a cross for their sins so they could spend eternity together. Consider what great things he has done for you. Celebrate the gospel. Verse 25, but if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. So if you still do wickedly, you shall be swept away, both you and your king. And keep in mind, this is happening in Gilgal. This is where they crossed the Jordan River. This is where they the Ark of the Covenant, they stepped in the water. The waters came up. They crossed over into the Promised Land. They settled at Gilgal. So he's probably using this river imagery to just say, you see that river right there? If you'd still do wickedly, you and your king, you're going to be swept away. Alright, those are, those are Samuel's parting words. And I want to spend five minutes going over somebody else's parting words before we leave. All right? This is, Samuel lived a life that was dedicated to one thing. Glory of God. All right, turn to Acts 20. We're going to read Paul's closing words to the church at Ephesus. Acts chapter 20. This is Paul's third missionary journey. He's, I got a map here. Not that you can read it, but I like maps. So he leaves Antioch, he goes around on this journey. It was a four-year, probably a four-year missionary journey. Three of those years he spent in Ephesus, at the front end of it. So that first time he leaves Antioch, he goes up through Galatia, hits Asia. Ephesus is right in that area. 
right? Then he leaves and goes up through Corinth and he writes a bunch of the New Testament there, sends out a bunch of letters during this missionary journey. And then at the end, he's headed back to Jerusalem, wants to get there for Pentecost. So he's headed back to Jerusalem and he goes, hey, I really just want to stop at Ephesus one more time. Like I, I spent three years with these people, teaching them and loving them and caring for them. And I want to, I wanted to swing through, but I know if I go into the city, there's no way I'm going to be able to get out. They're going to try to convince me to stay. So I'm going to go to Miletus, which is about 35 miles south. And you can see Miletus right here next to the word carrier. Miletus over to the left. Um, it's about 35 miles south of Ephesus. And he goes, just send me the elders. Just send me the elders of the church at Ephesus. That's all I, I just want to spend some time encouraging them as my farewell. And this would be only a few years before Paul was executed. Okay, so he goes in, and in verse 18, he says that when they came to him, he said to them, now listen to Paul's farewell to these folks. You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and of faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold... I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and affliction await me. Verse 24 is my favorite. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. Verse 36, And when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them, And there was much weeping on the part of all, and they embraced Paul and kissed him, and being sorrowful most of all, because of the word he had spoken, that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. We could spend hours on this passage. I've probably preached three or four sermons on this passage because I love it. But I want to leave you with one verse. Verse 24. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. This is like a Notre Dame football, put it over the door as you're running out. You No sports people in here, sorry. Um, but I was, I was reading a story the other day on, I've got to come up with some different references besides sports. Um, I was reading a story the other day on John Patton. He was a missionary in Australia. And he ministered in the 1800s around these islands around Australia. And he tells this story he was there, he was ministering, the ministry was successful, there was, you know, by successful I mean people coming to Christ and knowing Christ and being baptized, and he tells the story of the very first missionaries that were sent from the London Missionary Society over to this group of islands. So the London Missionary Society would send missionaries all over the world, and a lot of times they were met with resistance and things would happen. So John Patton, who's in the islands writing this biography, he tells the story of the first missionaries, the ones who broke ground for them to eventually come back. And this is what he said, to the best of our knowledge, The new hybrids had no Christian influence before, and these are the two missionaries, John Williams and James Harris from the London Missionary Society landed in 1839. As their boat approached the island, they excitedly prepared themselves to minister to the people of the island. And as they rowed to shore with their crew watching from a distant boat, both of these missionaries were killed, boiled, and eaten by cannibals only minutes after going ashore. Think about that. They've prayed and prayed and prayed, Lord, where do you want us to go? We're part of this London Missionary Society. Where, where, do, you, where do you want to send us? 
They, they land on this. Lord, I think you want us to go here. So they go, and they, they land, and they, they're excitedly kind of probably going all nervous, going to shore. They're being obedient. They're sailing across the world to tell people about Jesus. And they come ashore, and they're killed within minutes. Talk about living, verse 24. But I do not account my life of any value, nor is precious to myself. Why? Why would you live that way? Why would you be willing to do that? Because they found something worth sacrificing everything. It didn't, it didn't matter. They, they, they heard about a Savior who died on the cross for their sins. How can people in Iran tell everybody else about Jesus knowing their life could be in danger? For the same reason. They found something worth sacrificing everything. And I think sometimes it's hard, especially in America, and I don't like putting this American tag on things, but it's, it's reality. I think it's hard in America sometimes for us to fathom that our faith, our walk with Jesus, can sometimes include heartache and trials and tribulations and sometimes even death. That's it's hard to wrap your mind around. Right? You look, think about the Israelites. The reason the Israelites wanted a king, safety, protection. That's why they wanted a king. They wanted safety, and that seems totally reasonable. I don't fault them for a second. The problem is, for a thousand years, God had promised that he would be the one that would take care of them and watch over them and deliver them. And when things got tough, he would be there, but they didn't trust him. They wanted just an extra layer of security, right? They want a king where if something happens and people come in, they see that we have an army. They see that we have a royal family. They see that we have somebody who can protect us. With this whole God thing going down, you raise up a judge at the last minute and Samson comes out of nowhere and beats everybody up. But that's nerve-wracking. I don't really like this whole judge thing. I want a king. And God's like, all I want from you is I want you to trust me and walk by faith. Faith is all I've ever wanted from the very beginning. From the beginning of time, that's all he's ever wanted. It's all he wanted from the Israelites. And it's all he wants from you. And it's all he wants from me. Walk by faith. Hebrews says, without faith it is impossible to please God. And one of the lies that Satan loves to whisper in ears, the snake, one of the lies that he loves to whisper is that faith never involves the unknown. Never involves uncertainty. It never involves risk. That God's going to show you what's around every single corner you come to. You're going to know it all. It's going to be, you're going to, and that, that's not how it works. In reality, our relationship with Jesus involves risk and it involves unknown. And that's what causes us to put our faith in him and trust him and look to him for guidance and deliverance. And when you're scared and you want to cry out for a king, an earthly king, you come to realize that the only thing stronger than fear is faith. That's the only thing that's stronger than fear is faith. You think of that quote I said at the beginning. It's courage is not the absence of fear, but rather the judgment that something, or I would add the word, or someone, capital S, is more important. Courage is not the absence of fear, but rather the judgment that something or someone is more important. And I'm going to close with this story. A few months before Martin Luther King was killed, he was preaching a sermon on Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And I, I listened to the sermon this week. But he was, he, just, he was really encouraging his congregation to take a stand, a peaceful stand. Martin Luther King was a, was a man of peace. He was encouraging his congregation to 
take a stand, to stand up for injustice, to continue to love people around him, to love people who were persecuting him and others. He was always like, always show love. He was a preacher. Always show love. It doesn't matter what they do to you. All right? And he warned them. He said, Satan's going to whisper things in your ear. That's going to make you scared. He's going to whisper things. And things will physically happen to you. Things will literally happen to you that will make you doubt the goodness of God, but don't. Because God is who he says he is. And this is what he said at the very end of the sermon. He said, you may be 38 years old, as I happen to be. He actually died at 39. You may be 38 years old, as I happen to be. And one day, some great opportunity stands before you and calls you to stand up for some great principle, some great issue, some great cause. And you refuse to do it because you're afraid. You refuse to do it because you want to live longer. You're afraid that you'll lose your job, or you're afraid that you'll be criticized, or that you'll lose your popularity, or afraid that somebody will stab you, or shoot you, or bomb your house, and you refuse to take the stand. He said, well, you may go on and live until you're 90, but you're just as dead as 38 as you would be at 90. He said, and the sensation of breathing in your life is but the belated announcement of an earlier death of the Spirit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we... Thank you for this passage. Thank you for just the, the, the men and women of Scripture. The men and women of Scripture that we can look to and just see how they, they lived their lives, how they pursued you and they followed you, Lord. And I think most of all, thank you for your son. Thank you for Jesus. Thank you for the cross. Thank you for that you, you died on the cross for the sins of the world. And you want that relationship. And there are people here today who are curious and you are pursuing them. You want a relationship with them. And I pray that if there's anybody here today who's like that, that they would talk to the person who brought them. Or they'd talk to me after the service and say, look, I know Jesus is pursuing me. And I, I know I, I'm, just, I'm nervous and I'm scared and I'm afraid. And Satan keeps telling me this isn't going to work out. And, but it is. And the creator of the universe wants nothing but a loving relationship with you. And your, your, your past and your history means nothing. Lord, we love you.